0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I am your co host, Nadia Butt. I'm an organizational development and belonging strategist. I usually do this thing with my co host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DEI and people analytics, but he is off gallivanting in South America. So you all are stuck with me this week. Hopefully everyone is having a great summer. I know you all miss mine and Rob's news stories and banter. Who wouldn't? But we will be back soon with season four starting in September. So please stay tuned. There's so much to discuss and catch up on. In the meantime, we've been doing some best of episodes where we are highlighting certain conversations in a particular industry. We've done best of inclusive consumer products, best of inclusive media, and most recently, we did Best of Disability Inclusion. So definitely go back and take a listen. If you haven't already, I think you'll enjoy them. On today's special episode of Inclusive Collective, we bring you the best of healthcare. If you know us, then you know Rob and I are passionate about health equity and health access. We were really lucky to have some pretty amazing guests join us on ICPod to talk about the innovative work that they're doing in the healthcare space and really how they're advocating to decrease disparities and increase awareness, equity, and access in medicine. Today, we feature our conversations with Dr. Juliana Simonetti, co-director of the Weight Management Program at University of Utah, Jalen Rowe, founder and CEO of Ferry, and Yasin Fall, co-founder of Hive. We start with Dr. Simonetti. For those that tune in regularly, you will know that Dr. Simonetti is actually Rob's wife and my self-proclaimed new bestie. She is a leader in the field of obesity medicine, passionate about addressing complexities around excess weight and improving quality and access to healthcare for all. And a side note, she makes an incredible tasting juice from veggies, fruits, and herbs picked right from her garden. I know this for a fact. We talked to her about stigmas associated with excess weight, access to healthier foods and nutrition, body positivity, and health problems inherent in having obesity. Here's a clip from our conversation.
3: So I think there are two issues, right? And I think it's great that people in general are feeling more empowered and and building on self-esteem. I think that's wonderful. And I come from, you know, I'm from Brazil where, People, in particular, the females, I feel like sometimes they ooze confidence, right? Like it doesn't they feel very sexy regardless of their body shape. Is just a really interesting options here. I think it's really important to have the level of self-esteem, to feel confident with your body. That's a different issue than a health issue. So... We understand that you know that obesity is a disease and it has significant impact on your overall health. I see people every day, unfortunately, they' are suffering from from that. Um, the excess weight has the impact in your heart. We see patients with you know heart failure now at very young ages because you just your body cannot handle um, excess volume. We are seeing patients with fatty liver disease that ended up having, unfortunately, liver cirrhosis and might need liver transplant. Um, we have patients that have diminished mobility because of the, the pressure in their lower extremity joints, like on their knee mm-hmm. joints, on their hips. Mm-hmm. So that there's so many health issues, and we know of those health issues, and we have insulin resistance, higher rates of diabetes. Uh, the, the problems go on, and now they have some association with increasing weight and in, uterine cancer for females, breast cancer, and some GI cancers. So, I mean, we, we have that knowledge. So, it's great to make progress on feeling comfortable in your body and having self-esteem. Um, however, obesity is a disease, and we can't ignore the health impact it has. It's just how we approach it. In a clinic like ours, we do have registered dietitians. We have exercise physiologists. We have it's surgeons, but also have physicians who specialize in obesity medicine. We can provide the medications are incredible now. The news, lieu of like new anti-obesity medications and how much weight loss they promote, one of the newer ones that's pending FDA approval, average weight loss of 52 pounds, oh, wow. which is incredible, lot, yeah. right? Yeah. So the progress we have made is really incredible and having all the tools to help our patients is really important. And I think that with the stigma, people internalize that stigma mm-hmm. and just feel that they, they have weak willpower and they're, you know, just if they work harder that they would succeed. And now we see too, like with the insurance companies, this is a constant fight that we have Fighters, and requires yeah. so much effort is access, right? Now we have all these great tools and guess what? Access. To the tools are not available. The insurance companies still think that obesity is a choice and we can treat every complication of obesity, but we're not willing to treat obesity. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I, I say this all the time with my patients, almost like wish they have diabetes because I can use some of the medications that I know are going to be very effective. They are approved for both diabetes and weight loss. They do not approve it for weight loss, but they will approve it for the treatment of diabetes, diabetes oh. you know, makes no sense. Yeah. And 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 again, it goes on this pervasive issue of weight stigma and this belief that excess weight and obesity is a choice. Yeah.
0: Doctor Simonetti, I'm so cu- curious too. Um, the previous kind of like solution was like eat and exercise, like that was what you're saying. I'm curious because like even the knowledge around nutrition has evolved so much in the last like 20 years. Even access to food, like, it's more expensive. I was just joking with my friends this past weekend. It's more expensive to buy, um, like, you know, something like spinach or kale than, like, a hamburger at McDonald's. Like, the access is just so incredibly hard to even any sort of, like, healthier options. It, does that play a part in the conversations that you have with, with your patients?
3: Yes, absolutely. Right. Access. And, and, and again, the reason why I love this field is because it's so complex and there are so many socioeconomic issues that go into someone making a choice of what they eat or having access to healthier foods. And I see patients like that often that literally are saying, you know, I run out of money before I'm able to buy more food. So, in you know, we are Assessing our patients for food insecurity, and food insecurity plays a big role in the obesity epidemic. And when we look at disparities among obesity, in particular, it impacts more people of color, BIPOC communities, and it has to do with, you know, some of it has to do with food access, mm-hmm. socioeconomic food, uh,
0: environment,
3: social economics, environment. There's a lot of studies that show lower. Um, educational levels um, tend to have higher rates of obesity. And then when you look at, at the rates of obesity, non-Hispanic African-Americans or non-Hispanic um, Blacks have much higher rates of obesity, followed by Hispanics, then followed by, you know, whites and then Asians. That was Dr.
0: Juliana Simonetti. If you're interested in listening to the whole conversation with her, you can go back to season two. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back with more highlights of inclusive healthcare with Jalen Rowe of Fairy. Welcome back. Next up in today's special episode on inclusive healthcare, we hear from Jalen Rowe, founder and CEO of Fairy. Fairy is a women's health startup focused on closing the gaps on period poverty. Here, Jalen speaks on the intersection of politics, legislation, women's health care, and equitable access to menstrual products. Let's take a listen here.
1: I'm so happy that in Utah, they passed the legislation that mandates free menstrual products in schools. I would ask, though, is is that fully funded? Um, Is the state going to be providing the towns and the schools funding for that? Mm. Because what we're seeing is some states do and some states don't. In Massachusetts, for example, we have not passed the right. IM bill that would mandate free menstrual products in schools, women's shelters, and prisons. Even if it passes, it's not a guarantee that it will be funded. And so then the burden goes back to the towns and the school districts. And of course, the school districts that need it the most don't have the funding for it. <laughs> Um, and so that is a problem. So we need to make sure that legislation is passed, but it's also going to guarantee funding for mm-hmm. the towns and schools that need it. In addition to that, what makes very different than any other, I guess, what our value proposition is, I should say, is that we believe that there isn't one way to menstruate that what works for one individual's body is very different than my body. And so when we create baskets, when we create our period paluses, we make sure that we have a variety of products. So different size pads, different size tampons, different kinds of tampons. It's really important, especially for students, that they get choice on what works best for their body. And if you think about it, not Mm -hmm. only do we need these students to go to school and be productive um, and not have to stress about bleeding through their pants and being really embarrassed, but if you actually look at the student athletes, right, high school student athletes or college student athletes, their scholarship or them getting into college is based upon their performance. We want to make sure they have access to period products and period products that work best for them. So if they're using a tampon that's super cheap and not right, and they can bleed through, they're not going to perform well. So we really need to look at this carefully then, and we need mm. to have deeper conversations about this.
0: You had mentioned the I M bill in Massachusetts. Can you talk a little bit just briefly around what is that and what is the impact that bill can have across the state of Massachusetts. Yeah. So
1: sadly it it has not passed. Um, but the IM bill essentially would mandate free menstrual products for prisons, schools, and, and shelters. Um, but it's not, it's not a guarantee that it would be funded, which is one of the biggest problems. So not only, um, fear is part of the Massachusetts menstrual coalition. So we continuously advocate To legislators. And during our period pluozes, actually, we've invited our state senators and state representatives to come and speak. And that's been great because it's a lot of young people who have hosted these period Paloozas. So we've done one with Girl Up and Babson College. So it's good for them to hear from legislators and or to meet with legislators and really advocate for the IM bill. I have to say I'm really impressed with my daughter's generation or my son's generation, because they're so much more comfortable about talking about periods. They're so much more comfortable about talking about having conversations that I could never have had with my parents at the dinner table. We talked about everything.
0: That was Jalen Rowe, founder and CEO of Fairy. They are really doing incredible work over at Fairy as it relates to helping end period poverty. Head over to their website, com. So that's W-E-A-R-F-I-H-R-I. And you can sign up to sponsor a student, host a period palooza, and purchase sustainable and safe period products for yourself or donate to someone in need. Finally, this past season, we were joined by co-founder Yasin Fall of Hive. Hive is a secure data platform connecting data collectors with participants across language and cultural barriers faster. Hive provides accessible AI technology and data tools focused on Africa and other underserved populations that have a data drought as it pertains to healthcare access and equity. Let's take a listen to her share how she hopes to solve this problem. So currently at Harvard, um, I'm doing two research projects
2: one of them is focusing on the experiences of children living with disabilities. And Senegal only just recently um, started collecting actual data on people living with disabilities, which is crazy, right? Because if you're not counted, how are you included? So that was a huge feat for Senegal. But honestly, it had me thinking about, like, what do we do about these data jobs? How do we scope and understand, like, what are the problems? And I think qualitative research have been, have been used to try to, like, get a scope. Um, and understand. But how do you understand a place where. Especially when you're distant from this place. Or when you don't even know where to begin. Yeah. And I, what I, when I, when I believe. What my lived experiences has, has taught me. Is that the people on the ground. Know way better than us. And I, that has come from. Us coming from oral, people. Who are really community oriented. And who come from this oral tradition. Where it's just like we. You can tell. I can say. Tell me where the children living with disabilities are. On this block. And people can point me that Mm -hmm. so i think because they me i just walk they know right they know so i think i walk in with the humility of being like the people know so one what we have to do is we have to ask them Mm -hmm. in ways that are accessible to them and secondly make sure that when we ask them um we are making sure we're compensating them for their time
3: Mm -hmm. um
2: research is very it's very there is a power structure in research and often the people who are contributing and allowing us to have such meaningful data they're not reaping the benefits of that or people don't come and revisit and say like oh here's what we've done with this information but it's like no this is going to be a collective action this is all for the development of the country of that locale or whatever and we really hope that it can make a difference when it comes to bettering health and development outcomes on the continent
0: and, and you said you found the answer. I don't know if you can share it with us. You said that you figured out how to do this, right? Because it's obviously to go ask people. It's labor intensive. And so how to use technology to, to be yeah. able to do that. If you can tell us. I don't know if you can tell us. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs>
2: the trade so, secrets. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think so. What, what, I, what I can share is that we're trying to look at get, getting insights from people locally using audiovisual data, first and foremost. Um, and then using the power of AI in order to help translate that data one and then allow it to be um, easily managed. So we're both trying to form both a, uh, a place where people can go to get insights. So we're trying to fl- create a database, a database of people who we have direct access to and can get um, meaningful insights from um, Whenever we, need, whenever someone has a question relating to them. Mm-hmm. But then also allowing, on the other end of it, Researchers or people who may be practicing, whether they're people in the Department of Health or Finance, whatever it may be, to understand the information easier. Because the one thing about audio visual information is that it can be a lot, it can take up a lot of space, it can be, um. it can just be a lot of data. Mm-hmm. But I think we're at a point where technology allows us to go through data with you. So whether that is going through and pulling for, pulling, using AI to help pull insights that people might automatically find relevant, or if you had that already coded and Someone can go and say, okay, pull out information that refrains that is around demographics or X, Y, or Z. Um, We have the technology to do it. it. So it's just really meeting the ideas of um, AI with these other ideas of social sciences and how people normally communicate. Yeah.
0: I hope that's that's helpful. It is very. And actually, just to (laughs) translate that for any listeners and maybe even you, Rob, just. what I took away from that is the OG people who collect data um, for those meaningful insights is the auntie network. And I, right. I think when we think about the Brown and black auntie network, the community members of the women in those communities, they know what's going on. They, like you said, they know who's down the street, who's, who's maybe sick or who needs more support. And there's so much knowledge there is that is that that's kind of what I'm taking away from from, from that in terms of collecting that data. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: It is absolutely about the auntie network. We are tapping into the auntie networks, And I think if people have been, especially in black and brown areas, you know what I'm talking about. It's like you're walking in the street and you see the, this huddle of uncles and aunties. You go to them and you ask them questions. I'm like, that's how we operate.
0: Well, folks, that was so much fun hearing from our guests on inclusive healthcare. Such amazing and innovative work to help close the gaps in healthcare disparities. Thanks again to our guests highlighted on today's show, Dr. Juliana Simonetti, Jalen Rowe, and Yasin Fall. Thanks, as always, to my co host, Rob Hadley. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refillion Media. We'd love to hear from you, so send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting purposes, check me out at nasconsultants.com and rob at tacanoconsulting.com. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Be well.